All right, good evening, everybody. It's a pleasure to be joining you again on this Tuesday evening to be going through the big questions that we'll be dealing with in Jewish philosophy. Uh, last week, we dealt with the question of uh, why does God, how does God operate within nature or beyond nature, and is what is the difference between nature and God. Tonight, we are dealing with one of the most um, basic and complex areas in Jewish philosophy, or philosophy in general, and that's the question of, do we have free choice? So, so the idea of having free choice is really, if God knows what we're going to do, how do we have free choice? So there are a couple of questions that sort of are going to come up in the course of the series that fall into similar, <coughs> similar categories. For example, the, the great philosophical question of, can God create a rock so big that he can't pick up? which is the uh, sort of uh, catch-22. If he can pick it up, well, then he's not as powerful as possible because he can't create things that he can't pick up. If he, if he can create something so big he can't pick up, so he's not all powerful because he can't pick it up. So it's sort of a circular logic. So similar over here, <coughs> the question is that um, if God knows what I'm going to do, so uh, do we have free choice? So part of the, the question sort of evolves out of this element of this idea that we have to first and foremost define what God is. Um, I'm going to use some basic terminology, which uh, granted, uh, perhaps the most basic question in Jewish philosophy, is there God, um, is a sort of question that Jewish philosophy doesn't really deal with because it's sort of one of the starting points that you move from. But let's just start with what exactly is the Jewish God? And the Jewish God, I think, would be fair to put into three Three broad, three broad um, terms of reference. One is God is all-powerful. That's what's called um, omnipotent, that a God can do anything. Two, he is omniscient. He knows everything. And three is God is good. So all three of those questions are, <coughs> are crucial. All three of those aspects of God, of the definition of God are crucial. So God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and is good is uh, the fundamental basis for the Jewish question. So our question is going to come along the omniscience of God, that if God knows everything, so can we truly have free will? Now, there's within the world of general philosophy, there's the concept of determinism, which in essence comes and says you don't have free will. Um, but uh, Judaism has never felt um, determinism as anything of any real uh, value. And we'll go through some of these ideas. So let's start off with uh, the first source that I have in the sheets in front of you, which is the Rambam, <coughs> Maimonides. Now, you're going to see that within the world of Jewish philosophy, there are a lot of names that we were going through. But there's no question that there is no uh, author that is so unique in his complexity and comprehensiveness of dealing, tackling Jewish topics than Maimonides. So all the others, you have many rabbis sort of uh, relegate themselves or say um, allocate themselves specific areas of Jewish, of Jewish life where they, um, they, they flourish. So for example, uh, Rashi is known as the, the commentator par excellence, both on the Torah, the Tanakh, as well as the Gemara. But you don't read, but Rashi never wrote a philosophic work and Rashi never wrote a halachic work. Um, if you look at Rav Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, so he <coughs> wrote this magnus open of a halachic text, but you don't know much about him in philosophy and you don't see writing anything in the, in, in the areas of um, commentaries on the Torah. Um, so you've got some in commentaries, some in the, and now you have the Rambam who really spans the whole gamut of Jewish life that he has. He doesn't have a commentary per se on the Torah, but he's, he's uh, more Avuchim, the guy to perplex, is in many ways a commentary on the Torah. There are, and there are now books that have been written that have sort of taken, slip, taken snippets out of the Gata Perplex and made them a commentary on the Torah. The Rambam is known primarily in the world as a halachic authority, but he is no less a philosophical or a philosopher in every sense of the word. So he starts dealing with this in the areas of the laws of repentance. Free will is granted to all people. If one wants to turn oneself into a good path and to be righteous, he has free will. And if one wants to turn oneself to an evil path and be wicked, he has free will. As it is written in the Torah, behold, the man is like one of us to know good and evil. So if you ask, like, if you look in the areas of where you would expect the Rambam to put this philosophical statement. So at the beginning of the Rambam's writings, you have something called your Sodea Torah, 
the laws of the fundamentals of Torah, you would think that this idea would go over there. But the Rambam actually puts it in the laws of repentance. So these are, you know, come around Yom Kippur. This is when we learn these things. And it will become a little bit clearer as we go on because the whole concept of free choice is, is so much part of this idea that we as humans, are, there's an expectation from us that God has expectations that we've been put in this world to do certain things, to do mitzvot and to not do averot, to do good and not to do bad. This week's parasha is going to say, I've placed in front of you, it's a chayv, it's a tov, it's a mav, it's a I've placed in front of you good and bad, death and life, choose life. So if there's to be choosing life, it means that I have the ability to choose. And as much as we can talk about it in, in theoretical terms, do I really have free choice? The reality is we all think we have free choice. And the Torah demands that we use our free choice wisely. So the question is, is that, well, how does this, how do how the mechanics of it work? <clears throat> so one of the um, early, um, early Jewish philosophers. So if you're going through Jewish history, so you have the Tanakhic characters, um, and that ends with the prophets. And after, after the prophets, there's a period called the Anshay Knesset Gdola, which were you know, the members of a great assembly that we read about these people in the, the um, in the Mishnah and Perk Avot, but we go into a period called the Tanaim and Amoraim. So these are the people who initially wrote the Gemara and the Mishnah and then followed by the Gemara. The period after that, so the Gemara was finished around the year 6-700 of the modern era. So in the period that post that, like 2-300 years after that, we have a series of individuals called the Go'onim. The word Go'on means genius. But in this context, it's a, a period of time where we have individuals called the Go'onim. So there's Rav Hai Go'on, Rav Sadia Go'on, Rav Shrira Go'on. These are people that are probably not particularly well known. One of the Go'onim, so someone who's a Go'on, but is not one of the Go'onim, Go'onim is the Vulnagon. Because the Vulnagon lived in the 1700s. These we're talking about Hebra that lived in the you know, 12, 1200 years ago. So Rav Sadia Go'on, um, was one of the most notable philosophers in early Jewish uh, rabbinic literature. Um, if you ever, you want something that's interesting from Sadi Gaon, he is the first person who deals with the concept of extraterrestrial life. So as, as uh, strange that might sound, in the, uh, when Devorah, the prophetess Devorah, um, wages a battle, there's a, something called the Song of Devorah. After the victory in battle, she sings a song. And in the song, she says she curses the, the people of the, the people of Meron. And it's not clear why do these people of Meron. And the Medrashim come and say, this was a star. So Rav Sadia Gaon starts talking about the fact that there is life outside of earth. So he's, a, he's, a very, he's one of the most respected uh, philosophers in, in, the, in the Jewish literature. And he brings four proofs for the idea that Jews, that we, that we believe that you have free choice. So first and foremost, he says, experience. It's obvious that everybody uh, experiences free choice. When you um, have to make decisions in life, then it's obvious that one has free choice. You don't, are not compelled to choose one way or the other, other than your own inner compulsion. And we'll talk a little bit of what we mean by free choice. But <clears throat> it's something that we experience. We feel like we are free to choose our paths in life. The second proof, he says, is divine justice, reward, and punishment. If the whole concept of reward and punishment exists within Judaism, then it has to be that if I'm going to get punished for doing the wrong thing, there has to be an ability to have chosen to do the wrong thing. And if I'm going to get rewarded for doing the right thing, so it must be that I, I have chosen to do right. If, if man doesn't have the ability to choose, then how on earth can we can a, can a just and fair God, and we said one of the definitions of God is God is good. How could a God that is not good, that is supposedly good, punish people if they did things that were not in their choice? Or alternatively reward them, as the Torah talks about, rewarding people if they're not choosing to do good. So it says that's the second proof. It must be the fact that there, since there is reward and punishment throughout the Torah, must be that there's a fact that there is choice and that there's the ability to choose and the failure to make correct decisions that will determine ultimately if a person is rewarded or punished. The third one is the fact that throughout the Torah, it says consistently that, uh, you know, you should choose. We quoted earlier the verse that, uh, that uh, the Raman God, Behold, man has become like one of us to know good and evil. 
So that Adam ate from the tree in the garden. Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat? So the fact that, that Adam is there says that he had a choice. He chose to eat it. Then he shouldn't have eaten it. So we see throughout the Bible, throughout the Torah, the concept of choice and that you should choose and you should choose wisely. And finally, he brought, <coughs> he says that even once you move beyond the Bible, the Talmud and the like talk consistently about this idea of free choice. The most notable of which, which I think we'll quote again a little bit later, is a that everything is the hands of heaven except the fear of heaven, which means that, you know, whatever's going to happen with you in life might be, you know, in Hashem. So, oh, you're going to win the lotto, you're not going to win the lotto. You're going to be healthy, you're not going to be healthy. All of that's in the hands of heaven. But ultimately, there's one thing that Hashem does not have any control over. And that, what is that? How you use your free choice. So all these ideas, according to Rav Sadia, he says it is absolutely obvious from him that we do have free choice. So the concept of determinism is uh, something that we should never entertain as a, as a possibility within Judaism. Now, that being said, let me just move slightly for a few moments to talk about exactly what does free choice mean within the Jewish context. So free choice is not, um, we don't understand it as you go into an ice cream store and they say, would you, would you like chocolate or vanilla? And you choose chocolate over vanilla. Now, there's definitely a freedom of, to choose between one and the other. But that's not in essence what we're talking about here. Free choice, we are predominantly talking about the concept of making moral decisions, the ability to choose things that are in line with the divine will or to rebel or reject the divine will. So if Hashem says to us, you should do this, you should eat these foods, your ability to choose to eat them or to not eat them, that is the element of free will. So it's the ability to make moral decisions. It is the, uh, the thing that separates us from the animals, this idea of choice. Animals can also choose to do things, but they don't have the ability to make uh, moral decisions. So when a lion is going to kill or not kill the antelope or the, the, the young foal that he has caught, calf that he has caught, is not based on a moral rationale. It is based on an instinct. He does what he is programmed to do. So there's no such thing as a bad dog. There's no such thing as a bad lion. There's no such, these things are not bad. They are purely programmed to do what they are to do. So a good dog, so we might have good dogs and bad dogs. We might call them as such. But the reality is no such thing as a good dog. There's a dog. So if the dog makes on the, on the, ca on the, on the carpet, it's not because he's made a moral decision to infuriate you. It's because he's doing what instinctually comes to him. And if, he, and if he knows to go outside and not to make inside, it's not because he's made a rational decision. Maybe you've programmed him well enough to know that when I last time I made inside, I got a hiding, now I'll go outside. But it's not a moral decision. He's not doing it out of morality. Human beings have this moral ability to, this ability to make moral decisions. And despite what people want to talk about, dolphins and elephants and the like, the reality is, is these animals do not make moral decisions. Um, I'll wait for the, uh, the opposition to that shortly. That being said, there are times throughout the Torah that we see that uh, the concept of free choice is not necessarily a given. So even though a man is given free choice, <coughs> we do see one specific example, which is, uh, is clear, where man does not have free choice. And that is with regards to Pharaoh. So we see with Pharaoh at the beginning of uh, Shemot, when Moshe goes in and says, let my people go, or some version of that, so what happens is uh, Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let you go. So initially, in the first few times that Moshe goes in, it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, which means he was stubborn. But in Parashat Bo, for the last three, pla uh, the last three plagues, it says, parosh ki et libo, that I go to Pharaoh because I have hardened his heart. And so the commentaries all say, hold on a second here. How is it that you are going to punish Paro for uh, committing these terrible, uh, these terrible <coughs> crimes, it wasn't in his free choice. If it was up to Pharaoh, Pharaoh would let the people go. But the reason he's not is because Hashem is hard in his heart. Hashem has taken away his free choice. So if Hashem has taken his free choice away, how on earth are you allowed to punish him? So this becomes a, a huge question. So all the commentaries have different answers, either because... No, really what he did is he, he really gave him free choice. So some of the commentaries want to say he didn't take away his free choice, he gave him free choice. Because if, if so to speak, if I say to you, you know, give me your wallet, I put a gun to your head and say, give me your wallet or I'll shoot you. 
So you, do you have free choice to not give me your wallet? So technically you do, but it's not really, it's, it's, it's not exactly a fair decision. It's not a 50-50. So you need the odds to be lifted in the other, other direction as well. So what did Hashem do? So when it came to that Hashem hardened the heart of Pharaoh, what it really means is he gave him free choice, even though the gun was, so to speak, against his head. That's one approach. Another approach which for me resonates very well, and that is the idea is that free choice is not a static um, experience. It is a very mobile and dynamic experience. And I think we all have experienced this. So Rav Desla, who we quoted last week, if you recall, Rav, uh, Rav Eliyahu Desla, who was the opinion that there is no such thing as nature, everything is God. So he has a very uh, interesting essay called uh, Kuntus Habakhira. It's, the, uh, it's an article, it's a whole booklet on free, free will. And his idea is that the free will is like the battlefront. It's like the front line of, of a battlefield. That's where everything is, is it's most intense. On, uh, behind the front lines on both sides of the uh, warring armies is peaceful. So he says, when you have a free choice, so let's just say I'm a, a smoker trying to quit. So every day when, I, when I'm tempted for the cigarette, so I've got this battle happening in my life that, uh, you know, should I quit, shouldn't I quit? And it's very hard. So according to Rav Desla, that's the battlefront. Now, let's just say I quit cigarettes 10 years ago and I'm not even tempted by cigarettes before. So now the cigarette smoking is well in safe territory, well behind the, the, the front lines of the battle because it's moved. Since I won, I made a positive free choice decision to not smoke and I did that time and time again. The battle lines have been redrawn further and things that were a big challenge in the past are no longer a challenge anymore. And now there's a new challenge. So now I'm trying to give up alcohol. I'm trying to give up coffee. That's where my challenge is. I'm not sure those are moral decisions, but let's just say that they are. So that's where it is. And similarly, there are areas that are so far in enemy territory that we don't even, it doesn't even dawn upon us to even entertain it. So for example, um, um, it's a poor example, but I'll just say, so should I wear a strimal? So let's just say, should I wear a strimal? So let's just say it's a moral decision. So I don't wake up in the morning thinking, should I wear a strimal? Should I not wear a strimal? Okay. Or let's say, uh, yesterday was Bahab. Bahab is uh, one of three days that happen after both Pesach and Sukkot, where pious members of the Jewish community fast in atonement for sins that they might have done through overeating during the festival. Okay, so my guess is most of you, this is the first time you've ever heard of Bahab, which means that yesterday, none of us woke up thinking, should we fast today? Should we not? So that's so far ahead in enemy territory, that it's not a free choice decision either. My free choice decision today is, is, um, is where it's at and it will move over time. So with regards to Pharaoh, Pharaoh has free choice, but if you abuse your free choice too much, you lose it. It no longer becomes a free choice. Not losing in that you cannot make the decision, but it doesn't dawn on you to make a different decision. So if I'm a, I'm not a, a, so a person who is not Shomrei Shabbat and has no intention of being Shomrei Shabbat, so for them, when they wake up on Shabbat morning, the idea of not driving or not doing malacha is not even a, something they think about. It's not in their free choice domain. It's not that they don't, can't make the choice. It's just, it's not part of their decision-making quality. So similarly with Pharaoh, make enough decisions and Hashem takes away your free choice and you start making very bad decisions that are completely against your best interests. Anyway, so those are just, uh, those are just a bit of a side point vis-a-vis -vis understanding exactly what it means to have free choice. Okay. Now, the next thing I'd like to talk about is uh, another quote from the Rambam. <coughs> And he says as follows. I'm going to, you can follow in the English, but I'm going to read the original Hebrew. Um, so if Hashem had the ability to determine whether a person should be righteous or to be wicked, um, how could it be possible that Hashem could command us to do things and not do things? If he wasn't given free choice, so at the end of the day, the reason a person is wicked 
is not because he's chosen to be wicked. This is the way God made me. God made me in this way. So how could we ever have this concept of being a righteous person if a person could always fall back on the fact that this is the way God made me? Okay. Uh, so let me carry on. I'm skipping the lines here. Da. It's underlined. That being said, um, we have to appreciate everything is going to happen by God's will. Even though we have the ability to choose for ourselves what to do. So the Rambam is, is dealing with now the core of our problem. How is it possible that God's will is ultimately needs to be done and will be done. That's, God is all-powerful. And yet, nevertheless, even though our own decisions and choices are given over to us to make myself. Kate how does that work? So just as God wants a fire rises and water descends, and the earth rotates on its axis. So too, all creations go according to the way they were instinctually programmed to go. Nevertheless, Hashem wanted that there would be permission, so to speak, the ability within His own hands, and all His deeds would be handed over to him to do as he saw, please, as he chose. And there would be nothing compelling him or pulling him in any direction. But rather, man has this ability to do whatever is he pleases. So what the Rambam is doing over here is explaining this quandary which is with the title of our shir, that man has the ability to do, even though whatever he does will be done. Meaning, so, okay, I'm going to now, um, I'm going to rob a bank. So Hashem knows I'm going to rob a bank. So even though Hashem knows I'm going to rob a bank, it still doesn't, um, doesn't affect the fact that I'm going to rob a bank and I'm still liable and I still chose to rob a bank, even though Hashem knew. So the Rambam over here doesn't quite, not explicitly say, how does, how's the mechanics of that work? We're going to see that shortly. But nevertheless, it's just, he's explaining that it does work that way. Now, I'm just, while we are here, I'm going to, uh, before we go into the responses, um, just talk briefly about where this comes up actually in the Torah, where we see this problem come up. So you read about it in the Haggadah somewhat five weeks ago. So it, um, it says in the Brit Ben Abatarim, it is the covenant between the parts, which is the covenant made between Hashem and Avram Avinu, that you should surely know that your descendants will be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years and they will be oppressed over there, but I will take them out of there. I will judge the nation that's oppressed them, but they will leave with great wealth. So I hope you all remember that from the Haggadah. So at the beginning of Shemot, all the philosophers ask the following question. Was Paro being punished? Paro is being punished for enslaving the Jewish people. So Paro is going to come up to Hashem and say, hold on Hashem, you've ordained that the people would be enslaved for 400 years and they would be uh, punished and they, and they would do, why are you punishing me? Had I not enslaved the people, then your prophecy, then this statement that you had made would never have come true. So how is it, how am I being held accountable for something which... Um, which uh, you ordained beforehand. So the way that the commentators get around this is in a couple of ways. The Ramban explains, this is Ramban, not Rambam. <coughs> the Ramban explains that, um, in fact, the problem, he has a good point. However, the oppression that was foretold by Hashem was that they would be oppressed. But Egypt went another level. When they started killing the Jews, either killing them initially to kill them on the birthstone or subsequently to throw them into the river, plus all the other kinds of murders that you are told about throughout the Midrashim. So then you went beyond that which was divinely ordained. 
So had you just kept to the rules, then you're right. You would have a good claim. But since you went beyond that, so that, then you, that, that's, uh, that's why you're getting punished. The Rambam, however, I think is a, a bit more compelling, at least in my own mind. And that is that the divine will was that B'nai Yisrael would be enslaved for 400 years. What was not divinely ordained is who would be the enslavers. Nowhere does it say that you will be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. It just says that you'll be enslaved. You, Pharaoh, decided that you would be the one to enslave them. So therefore, um, that is why you're being punished. So even though we'd like to say this idea, <coughs> like if I could potentially, you know, if God didn't want you to lose $100, he would never have allowed me to rob $100 from you. Yeah, so that's a, a, a criminal mindset. So if God didn't, if no harm, if God didn't want you to ever come to harm, so then I would never have been able the ability to harm you. So why should I get punished? I'm just fulfilling the divine will. I'm the divine messenger. So you can get away with a lot of crime if you think in this way. So, so the way that uh, the, the Rambam saying is, no, is that the fact that you had to lose $100, so that was divinely ordained. But there are lots of ways to lose $100. The fact that you, Gad, decided to rob it, so you are accountable for the robbing. Had you not robbed him, then he might have lost it gambling. He might have been ripped off. He might have just fallen out of his pocket. Who knows what would have happened? But he, his losing $100 has nothing to do with you having stolen $100. Your stealing $100 means you are accountable. That was your free choice. You will be punished. His losing $100 completely separate. Which parenthetically, uh, you would have heard me say this before, is why according to the, uh, the Sefer Chinuch, the one of the books that explains the rationale behind Mitzvot, this is the reason that it is prohibited. Oh, we have a. This is why it is pro. Hold on a sec. There you go. Um, why it is prohibited to take revenge upon an individual? Because if I take revenge upon you, I'm saying the reason this happened to me is because you did it. But if we understand the reason this happened to me is because Hashem ordained it, and you were merely a messenger, and you will have to answer to Hashem. For what you did but that you but that this happened to me has nothing to do with you because had you not done it it would have happened in another way so for me to take revenge you're saying that this happened to me because of you whereas rather one should be taking a certain self-assessment as why did this happen to me okay that's the the way the, the Sefer Chinuch explains it okay carrying on so how do we get around this Rambam so we've talked about the Rambam here that we just mentioned and we're going to mention it um, something like the next part shortly but if God knows what we're going to do um, how does it work so first is uh, to say that actually and this is uh, according to certain opinions the reading of Rashi truth be told Hashem doesn't know everything so it's what we call in denying omniscience that uh, perhaps Hashem doesn't know so Rashi quotes this this is the Gemara in Sota where the case is brought over there regarding um, uh, who you will marry. So I'm sure you've heard, you've been at a wedding before, where someone says that, uh, that, uh, Hashem, that, that Hashem is up in Shemaim doing Shiduchim, matching men and boys and girls together, and it's as hard as splitting the sea. I'm sure you've heard that uh, Medrash before. But it also says that Hashem you know, will find you a suitable mate According to your uh, to your deeds, you know you're you're good. You're not. So the Gemara comes ask the question: What are you talking about? Everybody knows the Medrash that forty days before the child is conceived, a voice goes up from heaven and says, you know, but Ben so and so will marry, but so and so. So Rashi deals with this question over there. So he says as follows: Me have a if we're going to say that someone wicked gets a, a bad shidduch and someone righteous gets a good shidduch, so how on earth 40 days before the child is conceived do we know he's going to marry? We don't know if he's going to be good or bad yet. So we could answer up until this, well, God knows everything. God knows what's going to be. So it says, he says, he um, says, so if you wanted to suggest so if you want to say, well, you know how we know who they're going to marry, even though we don't know whether they're going to be wicked. They don't know whether they're going to be wicked or righteous yet. But God knows who they're going to marry because God knows everything. God's omniscient. 
So Rashi says, no. He says, it can't be. Because God and notes, and the way that we quoted this Gemara earlier was that free choice is in the hand of man. The way Rashi is taking is a little bit further than that. It says, God cannot determine. God does not know who will be righteous and who will not be, not be righteous because it's not in the hands of Hashem. So he quotes the Gemara, comes says, harayon, that when a, the, the, the angel that comes and oversees the pregnancy, brings the, 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 the embryo, the little embryo, and springs in front of Hashem and says, is going to be a mighty, she, he, she, they're going to be mighty, they're going to be weak, they're going to be wise, they're going to be simple, they're going to be wealthy, they're going to be poor, but righteous or wicked, he does not say, because that is in the hand, not in the hands of Shemayim. So Rashi comes and says, God doesn't know whether you're going to be good or you're going to be bad. So how is it, according to Rashi, that God knows what you, is going to happen before it happens. Rashi says, God doesn't know. It's the one area of life that God is oblivious to, so to speak. That God does not know what's going to be in the future vis-a-vis the morality. He knows you'll be rich. He knows you'll be poor. But how are you going to use those, that wealth? How are you going to use that might? That is up to you. And Hashem sits next to you waiting and watching and anticipating to see your decision. Okay. That is, um, works very well. Listen, from a practical level, okay, it works well because now God doesn't know, I don't know. Now I literally have free choice. The question doesn't exist. Um, But it sort of undermines our idea of divine knowledge. If we're going to remove omniscience from the divine definition, it's going to have certain uh, challenges to be able to understand that in that way. So, as you can imagine, this is a, a unique position brought by Rashi. And dare I say, it's not a very explicit, it's pretty explicit in Rashi, but not to the, it's not a philosophical work. So, the majority of the opinions in Chazal do not say that. So, I'm going to bring um, two major opinions by our two philosophers of the evening, the Rambam and Rav Sadia Gaon. And hopefully, I will be able to give them over clearly. So, the Rambam says, again, this is all in the laws of repentance. Because there's the ultimate mitzvah to be able to choose that your path that you're on is not correct and there's a better path to go. So he says, <coughs> Perhaps you will ask, the Holy One, blessed be He, does He not know what will become, what it will be before it will come to pass, that He knows what will happen? Did He not know whether a certain person will be either just or wicked? Or did He not know? If He knew that He would be just, then would it be impossible for Him not to be just? And if you want to say that he were, he, if you would, sorry, the English is a bit difficult. If thou wilt say that he did know that he would be just, but that is possible for him to be wicked, lo, did he not, he did not know the matter clearly. I think it's opposite. If, if, he, if he wasn't going to be just, is he going to be good? He's not going to be good. If God knows, can he be anything else? If God says he's going to be wicked, so has any way of him not being wicked? So it's our question. So he says, Know that the answer to this question is longer in measure than the earth and broader than the sea and great many elements, ranking mountains are suspended thereon. This is a complex question. But it is essential that you know this fundamental matter which I outline. In the second treatment, in the second chapter of what I call the fundamentals of Torah, one of his earlier chapters, and it's more philosophical, it was already elucidated that the Holy One, blessed be He, does not know things with a knowledge which exists outside of himself. Yes. Uh. <coughs> Just outside. For instance, as the sons of man do, for they and their knowledge are two separate things, but he may his name be exalted and his knowledge are one and is not within the power of the knowledge of man to attain this matter clearly and even as, uh, and even as it is not within the power of man to attain and find the truth of Creator, as it is said, for man shall not see me and live, even so it is not within the power of man to attain and to find knowledge of the Creator. Okay, so what does that mean in our language? So on fast days, we have a, um, a, um, a haftorah that we read, which goes, Lo machshavotai machshavoteichem, belo darchem darachainu umashem. My thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. Now, what does it mean, my thoughts are not your thoughts? 
so the Rambam is bringing it in two, two ways I think we could understand it. One is understand that the knowledge of Hashem is not the same as our knowledge. So when I know something is that there's a piece of information and I study that information and now it becomes absorbed within me. I didn't know it. So when you go to school, the, the goal of school, unfortunately, I think it would be fair to say, is to, for the teachers to get the information that's in their heads into the students' heads or that's in the textbooks into their heads. That's what knowledge is. It is taking everything that's in books and putting it in your head. So you have lots of receptors, you have sight, you have ears, you have touch, you have smell. All of the different senses are ways of accumulating knowledge that is outside of you and drawing it inside you so now it becomes part of you. Says, says the Rambam, understand Hashem doesn't operate like that. Hashem is not within the realm of the physical world that the knowledge of Hashem is the same as our knowledge. So let me put this in a slightly different way. We are bound by time. So there is yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And we, our question over here is, how does God know today what I'm going to do tomorrow? So the answer the Rambam is saying is, because there's no such thing as yesterday, today, and tomorrow in Hashem. Hashem's not bound by time. There is no time. You're using the wrong, uh, your wrong frame of reference. You're using very finite, mortal, human terms to ask a very profound question. So, for example, the whole idea of infinity. So we can understand conceptually that something can be infinite, but practically our brains don't comprehend that. Our brains can only comprehend that something goes on for a very, very long time. But the idea of something going on for infinity doesn't. The same as nothing. So um, I, was, I was discussing this with uh, Ben earlier this week, and he says, what is uh, nothing? He says, one of his rabbinim said, nothing is black or dark. He says, not dark. Rav Arya Kaplan writes about this in one of his books on, uh, on philosophy. He says that dark is dark. It's not nothing. If you close your eyes, what do you see? You don't see nothing. You see black. Nothing means nothing. And we cannot conceptualize the concept of nothing. So when you put Hashem into our world and now ask a human question to a divine to a divine problem, we are very going to end up disappointed because God is not bound by time. So I thought about it for a long time and I think this is a pretty good analogy, pretty good marshal. Don't have to, you can give me a thumbs up if you think it's good as well. So imagine you are watching uh, the World Cup rugby uh, final recorded. So you're watching it now. Um, you know the result. Let's just say you've watched it before. You know exactly what's going to happen. You know he's going to pass it this way and he's going to make a kick and he's going to score a try and he's going to do a penalty and you know exactly what's going to happen. But for a moment in the screen, as that player, if you can imagine that player is real now in real time, in their reality that is the screen, they don't know any of this because they, they're playing it live. They don't know that you're on the outside of the screen watching it from a different time experience. From the person playing in the screen, they, they really think that the, the game's on the line here. They, they upset that they got caught up a penalty. They, they, they don't know what's happening. But me, I know what's going to happen. But it doesn't affect the decision that they make on whether they kick for posts or they score the trial or they knock it on or they do something right or wrong. It doesn't affect them. Why? Because I'm not in their time experience. So that is what the Rambam is saying over here. Is that we are in a completely different time experience to Hashem. And since we are so... So there is no before, after for Hashem. The same as if I pause. You know, if I pause the video, the people don't know that I'm pausing it. <coughs> From their point of view, it's all carrying on. But I have that knowledge. So Hashem knowing what we're going to do before we're doing it, it's not a matter that it's a difficult question to answer. It's a very bad question to ask. Because the terms of reference are completely incorrect. Hashem is not bound by time. Okay? That's more or less what the, uh, the Rambam is saying. Is that the thoughts and ways of Hashem, whereas we need to acquire knowledge, ex the external knowledge, and draw it internally, the, Rambam does, the, the Hashem does not, because it is all part of Hashem's knowledge. Okay, so that's one answer to the question. The second answer is Rav uh, Sadia Gaon. So we quoted him earlier of uh, the four uh, proofs that he brought for, um, for why we have free choice. So he says as follows. He says, How can I have free will if God knows what I would choose? It's based on a mistake. In our human world, 
causation only works in one direction. Things happen earlier because uh, so things that happen earlier cause things to happen later. So if I do this, it will lead to that, and so on and so forth. Things that happen later can never go back and affect the things that happened earlier. So cause and effect can never work backwards. It says so that begins the rule of physics and the stuff uh, of science fiction. But God transcends the limits of the workings of time. We can never imagine doing something tomorrow that will affect what happens yesterday, but God can because God is beyond time. So it's similar to the Rambam, but it just works a little simpler because what he's saying is God is tomorrow. So God is tomorrow looking backwards and seeing backwards what we did. So it's not a matter that, so our starting question was, God is standing with me in the present, knowing what I'm going to do in the future. What the Rav Saadia is going, he says, God's already been to the future and seen what you did and is bringing it back to the present. So it's not that God is bound in present. So like the Rambam, it's not that God's bound in present, but rather that God has gone. So rather than outside of time, even though he's out, it's, it's that Hashem has the ability to reflect backwards uh, forward. That makes sense. It sounds a, it's a bit uh, counterintuitive. But Hashem can go to tomorrow, see what I did, then come back yesterday or come back to today and say, I know what you're going to do. So it doesn't affect the free choice because as I'm doing it, um, Hashem only knows after I've done it. But after I've done it, Hashem knows to bring it back retroactively. I, I hope that's not too confusing. But it's, it's similar to the Rambam in a ba- the idea of, so to speak, time travel, if you have you. Even though the Rambam is much clearer that the concept of the, the idea can God travel in time is a, is a wrong is a misnomer because there is no time by God. Whereas Rav Sadia is looking much more that there is this concept of time travel, but Hashem can travel into the future, then come backwards to see you know in the future see what you would have done, and then come back in the present. So rather than having that active influence in the present, he has that influence in the future to bring back to the past. All right. So so in summary, so do we have free choice? So we've gone through a number of uh, different ideas, but the reality is, is that free choice is without a doubt one of, if not the most fundamental core belief within Judaism, because on it, everything is dependent. I remember when I was doing a rabbinic training program in, uh, in Jerusalem, so I had a Rav, Rav Ruvain Leuchta, and uh, he asked the question, why do we have free choice? Which is different to what we're asking tonight, but he says, why do we have free choice? And so all the young uh, rabbinic scholars were saying, well, we have free choice because God can reward us and punish us and he can only reward us and punish us, we have free choice. So he said something which is quite profound. And he said that God gave you free choice because you matter. And the only way you can show that you matter is by exercising that free choice in deciding what you do in the world. Which is why, and for those of you who've ever come to me with uh, personal questions and challenges, is that it is a rabbi should never take away a person's free choice. Rabbi, what should I do? Assuming it's not a clear halakhic question. Rabbi, should I move to Israel? Should I stay in Australia? Rabbi, should I send my kids to this school or that school? Rabbi, should I uh, you know, invest in this business or not? So the answer is, these are your decisions and your free choice in making them will determine how you impact the world. If I deny you your free choice, I take away your free choice, so then what are you needed in the world for? You are only here to exercise your free choice. That is what you were put here as a human being. Now, he, um, he told a story which uh, made a, a profound impact on me. He said he was, uh, he was a rabbi in a particular yeshiva, and there was a boy who had really misbehaved. And in his own opinion, he said, I, I wanted to kick the boy out of the yeshiva. He needed to go. He needed to expel him. So they said, please, can't we go to Rabbi so-and-so, who was one of the big rabbis, I think it was Rabbi Yashif, was one of the big rabbis of Jerusalem. And he said, please, can we go and uh, speak to Rabbi Yashif? So Rabbi Yashif said, okay, we'll go speak to Rabbi Yashif, and I'll hear what he has to say. But I want you to know is that it's my decision, it's not his decision. This is my yeshiva. And I will decide where this boy stays. Now, maybe Rabbi Yashiv will have a different way of looking at it and maybe a different argument. But at the end of the day, this is my decision. And so he said, if you are in a position where you don't know what to do. So he says, people think, well, ask somebody else what to do or make the decision yourself. So Rav Lothar says, there are two, that's the wrong way of looking at it. The way you look at it is either you make your decision yourself or you quit. 
Because the job is too big for you if you can't make the decision. And so that is the way that my rabbinim, you know, taught me is that the decision, you have to make the decision. The, so you go ask advice. Why do you ask advice? Maybe people with broader shoulders or different perspectives can give you different ways of looking at the situation and, and, and help you to exercise your free choice in a more mature, well-rounded and informed way, but never to make the decision for you. Should never give up your free choice. Hashem gives it to us as perhaps the greatest gift that he does give to us. And we should never relinquish it at all. All right, everybody. So thank you for joining us this evening. If anyone has any questions, I'm happy to, if you go, I'm going to stop the sharing now. If you have any questions, please, uh, there's a chat box at the bottom. By all means, feel free. Please ask here. Yeah. you see a little... You see a little thing flashing at the bottom of your screen. By all means, please um, ask questions or you can unmute yourself. Uh, hi, Rabbi, it's Nikki. Hi, Nikki. Which Nikki? Rabbi, it's Nikki. Hi. <laughs> okay. This is too, this is too, um, it's too much to, t- to type. Okay. Um, <laughs> I just want to ask, and I think I asked you before, and I think it's connected to this, is I once came up to you in shul and asked you about climate change. And there are people in the world that say, oh, we've only got 50 years left and that's it. And it was before COVID and everything. But if we keep going along this path, if the world goes along this path, then we're going to destroy the world. And from what you're saying tonight, Hashem already knows what's going to happen because he's already been there. But then, do we have the free choice to actually exercise that and actually ruin the earth? And he just knows what's going to happen, or is it that he wouldn't do that because, well, my daughter actually pointed out to me when I was talking about it with her, with Becky, she was saying, well, he made a rainbow. Hashem made a rainbow to say that he would never destroy the earth again. So it's a big question. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, th- I think the uh, key is that um, what will be um, is is unknown to us, regardless. I think the idea of saying that we can sit back and it's God's problem is a mistake, and we never see that anywhere in Judaism. Uh, I think people who say that, uh, listen, if a God wants the world to be destroyed, you know, that's God's decision. There's nothing I can do to stop it. Now that is true. Um, in, but it's as true as saying that, you know, I can smoke as much as I want if I get, if I, if I get lung cancers because that's what Hashem wanted me to do. You know, one has free choice. And we will talk, uh, we are going to talk about this idea of fate uh, possibly next week about um, if, if fate and destiny. But I think the element that is, is we don't know what the future brings. So Hashem does, but we don't. And the ability to say, all right, so what is our responsibility at this point in time? We might be fighting a losing battle. That is possible. But nevertheless, so long as we don't know, you know, one has to put in the effort to make the difference. So we don't know. So you, one must live one's life as if the future is unknown. Even though we have a, an, a, an ultimate belief that everything happens for a reason and that Hashem is, uh, you know, is all, I wouldn't say it's preordained, but it is, it is known. But we have to live as if it's not. So I don't think anyone has the luxury of... Um, of ignoring climate concerns, uh, whether it be climate change and environmentalism in general. That being said, is we also have to be able to understand it within the context of, uh, of, of a broad picture that's uh, beyond it. So, for example, um, I think uh, uh, <coughs> some forms I've spoken about, it's like, uh, does God care about um, tigers? So I think we all agree that uh, were tigers to go extinct, that would be a terrible tragedy. But let's just say the options are that in order to ensure that tigers survive is going to necessitate um, a thousand people dying of starvation because they are very involved with the uh, tiger uh, fur trade industry. So let's just say hypothetically. So should we stop it or not? So the answer, I think from a Jewish point of view, looks at it in two ways. Number one is that human life always takes precedence over tigers, even if it's the last tiger on earth. So humans take preference. However, um, could be, and dare I say possibly, very probably, that when they're no longer tigers, what it would do to the ecosystem is going to come back to bite us. 
So it's all well and good and say, you know, uh, we, we, we uh, humans come before animals, or come before the environment and we have to watch out for, let's say, the economy, people need to survive. In the long term, if we don't uh, make responsible decisions now, everyone's going to uh, suffer the consequences in the future. Um, if I can go on a little soapbox over here, it's interesting where, uh, do you have something, do you want to follow up with that, Nikki, or are you happy with that for now? No, 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 you can okay. So a, a little bit of a soapbox. Um, so one of the questions, a lot of people were uh, going out against the prime minister when he wanted to get people, you know, people at school and he says, you know, the economy's got to continue and people say, how can you put people's lives at risk and talk about money? So, um, and, and I don't say this in a political context, I'm trying to say this purely from a, from a halachic perspective. So one has to, when, when one is dealing with uh, questions of life, one also has to have a much broader perspective that if um, a country were to go into an economic uh, collapse, so what does that mean for lives of people going forward? I'm not talking quality of life. I'm talking about quantity of life. So if a, a, a country suffers terrible financial downturn and, and, and uh, the banks start collapsing, so what does that mean for the funding of the hospitals, for funding of medical research, for the funding uh, for people to be able to live lives that are safe on all other levels? So the answer is, it's not entirely clear. It's going to have a very detrimental effect. So could be that by cl- keeping the economy now, you will, you know, keep it closing it now, you will save X amount of lives. But over the course of the next two, three years, how many lives will be lost as a result of not being able to fund the various health initiatives or directly or indirectly as a result of the fact that the economy has been so shot. So I think, I, I don't think that's necessarily a psych, but I think it has to be considered that money and, and, and life are very, uh, very, uh, very dependent on one another. And that if the government doesn't have money to spend on essential services, so people will die. So we have to be concerned about our economy, not because people want to drive nice cars and live in nice houses, but because those are the things that are going to fund life. So I think we have to look at what's in front of us at the moment and say that what is going to be, so back to the environmental thing, is that it's all well and good to save the whale now, um, or kill the whale now because uh, Japanese people want to have you know whale soup or whatever the case might be. Um, so I think you know if, if, if there's an industry in Japan that has been that is helping people survive by, by by killing whales, so I can hear the arguments and that's permissible. But if by fishing out the oceans of whales, it's going to have a large ter- a long term detrimental effect on the rest of humanity. So okay, you saved a hundred lives now, but you're going to cost a thousand lives over the next ten years. So I think we have to look at it in both contexts. But either way, you, we we got to you got to act as if the future is not known. All right, so there's a very long answer to a very short question, but I am a rabbi, that's what we do. Any other questions? Going once, going twice. Sold. So thank you very much, everybody.